This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by James Heal and one of our veteran guests, John McTernan, the former political advisor to Labour. So Keir Starmer has delivered his New Year's speech of 2024 and here are a couple of things he had to say. And I won't lie, I've hated the futility of opposition, the powerlessness and, yes, the pain that comes from watching the Tories drive the country I love into the rocks of decline. I also promise this, a politics that treads a little lighter on all of our lives. Because that's the thing about populism or nationalism. Any politics fueled by division. It needs your full attention, needs you constantly focusing on this week's common enemy. John, I think last time we had you on was um, over his Gaza gaffe and, and things weren't looking too bright for him. How do you think he did today? I think he did the right thing for a New Year message, that basically at this point in the cycle, we know there's going to be an election and Rishi Sunak's confirmed it's going to be this year. And you have to give a kind of frame for the election and the frame is change. Change, change for a purpose. And he addressed a big question, I think, which is why should anybody in Britain think anything can change? There's a lot of cynicism around. Voters kind of think, I can vote Labour because I don't want the other guys, I don't want the Tories anymore, I want to get them out. And before you can start saying what you'll do, you have to say, I do understand, you think nothing can ever change. I want to say things can change. The reason you think they can't change are these things, but I want to give you hope. And I thought realistic hope is probably going to be the theme of Labour all through this year. Um, there's been a lot of realism in the last year. It's time for a lot more hope. But in the end, it's going to be a balance between realism and hope. And I think um, I saw Janice say he said hope 18 times in his speech. James, some of the criticisms levelled at Kirstarmer was that actually it was very policy light mm. and um, rhetoric heavy. What did you think? Well, I thought it was familiar themes. I mean, I got in touch with this called Groundhog Day because I was watching this New Year's speech in front of heavy machinery. And that was exactly what the same thing Kirstarmer did last year, last January, this time, this week, last year. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, consistent messaging, emphasising themes of stability, that's something that voters want. If you look at, you know, talk to focus groups, what they really are tired of is, is, is politics really intruding on their lives. And you look at the past, the crises of the past decade, half decade or so, uh, Brexit, Covid, uh, cost of living, all of those things, Partygate. There is a real, I think, electoral prize for the, 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 the party that offers most convincingly they can take politics out of those lives. And... I think that that was why he was stressing, as, as John said, a, th- a theme of realistic hope. They've had a lot of talk about, uh, you know, boosterism under Boris Johnson, etc. And it's about how can you deliver that realistically while making it clear. Because obviously, if he wins, he's going to have to take on a, in the election in five years' time as well. And this really fits in with how Starmer emphasising the two-year terms he wants to have. Um, so I thought there's no, there's no bad thing in necessarily in familiarity. I remember, of course, 2019, the Conservatives fought and won on an election of basically pro- promising to take politics out of people's life, stop the chaos, get Brexit done. And so really, I'm sure there will be more calls for policy to come up later in the year. And that was interesting, kind of one of the questions and answers where um, Starmer said that he was going to be you know, prioritising fiscal rules, I'd say, in terms of the discussion of the Green New Deal and funding of that. But yeah, 
yeah, I thought it was it was sort of job done really, and then obviously it got sort of taken over by the Rishi Sunak news. But uh, yeah, a familiar theme to start the year, and uh, one where he's very well placed, and given where he's in the polls, he'd say it's working. Yeah, and as such an experienced strategist like yourself, John, Rishi Sunak very quickly swooped in and kind of took the headlines. He announced today that actually it's unlikely that there's going to be a May general election, whilst not definitely not going to happen. Did you think this was quite clever from number 10? Look, I think it is clever from number 10, but I also think it's interesting that it is the government playing catch-up with the opposition and that traditionally oppositions find it really hard to get into the news cycle. Um, and the, the, the evening up between the government operation on the one hand and the small labour operation uh, in their HQ, it shows you what kind of battle we're going to have that number 10 realise they have to piggyback off Labour news. And in, in, in a sense, over the last year, Labour have been determining some of the issues on which the country is debating things, the, the housing and planning. The Tories talk about it. Labour said, like, we've got these plans. It didn't split the party, it united the party. And so I think that sense of this being a fair battle between a, a government and a cashed-up Conservative party and, and Labour opposition, which is understaffed, undernumbered, you know, uh, outgunned in some ways, but actually still able to start to determine the way the term starts off. And, the, you know, we're all responding both to Rishi, but we're responding to Rishi responding to Keir. So Keir will be happy and Steve will be happy about that. James, what do you think are the pros and cons of a general election in May versus a general election in autumn? And then, John, what would be your... Yeah, well, I think this is a debate that goes right to the top of the Conservative Party and Downing Street as well. Um, the argument for May is uh, pessimistic in the sense that it, it, I think it's going to get better or worse over the summer. And with the Conservatives, you, know, you look at things like the divisions of, divisions of Parliament, is that going to get better or worse? Will the party pull back together or will, you know, May is as good as it gets, frankly. Uh, also, by having a May, you don't become... I think what Andrew Rawnsley called a sort of tail end Charlie of history, someone like um, Major in 97 or Balfour in 1906, who leaves it to the end of the parliament. Um, so you can then say you're still in control of political initiative. You can wrong foot the opposition. Labour have still got to work to do on their policy platform and thrash all those issues out. In autumn, obviously, they say, they say, hang on a sec, we can't go early when we're 20 points behind the polls. It defies all laws of political gravity. Let's best wait for the economic news to get better, that to be through into public sentiment. Depends how optimistic you feel about the Rwanda scheme, maybe get some of that working. So those are the kind of divisions going on right now. And I would say that realistically, they've settled on the, the cause of maximum flexibility. And that's what that's what Richard's next comments today are all about, giving himself maximum flexibility. I think there was no easy way of talking about the election because obviously Labour always going to hamper up uh, the, the chance of an election. They want to get this bottle of initiative going either way. I thought it was a good way of knocking the speech off the off the top of the news, if even if we can get good due consideration here. And I also think he had to sort of you know, birthed this narrative of Bottle of Brown, which, of course, was what the Tories did against Labour in 2007. So it was an effective way of killing some of the speculation, while also, obviously, not ruling out completely, which gives him the option of potentially trying to wrong foot the opposition and, and show himself as a master of events. And also, John, there's the local elections issue as well. The lo local elections are not going to be good for the Tory party, um, which is why you'd want to go in May. You'd want to go to conceal that badness. What you know, May is not going to be a launch pad for a great autumn. May is going to be a another blow uh, after the blow of Wellingborough, after the blow of the Blackpool by-election. And the, the the problem is wait is waiting for something to turn up. Is that events turn up, and they're never good for an incumbent government because by the by the time you're in your fifth year, 
you've already run away, you've already bottled it, you've bottled a year for election, you've bottled a May last year election, you bottled an October last year election, you're bottling a May this election. The thing is, you are wanting something to happen that benefits you. And you're the government, you have to shape everything to your to your agenda. That's why the five pledges last January, January 23, were at least a logical strategy. It was, I'll say there's five things that are important, and they're okay. I'll make progress on them, and I will go to the country, and I'll say to, you, say to the country, I've made progress, don't risk the progress I've made by going to the other guy. And the problem for the Tories, in my view, is they can't decide what their attack on Keir is. Is it that he is empty and boring, or is it that he's a risk? Mm. Um, you, you can't be both. So if you're empty and boring, with many things, you're not a risk. And they need Labour to be a risk. And if Labour won't play the game of being a risk, then what have the Tories... They've got to create, they've got to create something else. And I think that's what time is there for them. Can we create some other, and the Rwanda scheme is an idea, can illegal immigration be the risk? Can the boats be the risk? And I think the problem is when the country stop listening, they really stop listening. And it feels to me, and, and again, Rishi Sunak got onto it last year in his speech, the country wants change. Okay, he said, he acknowledged it, that it's difficult to be a government going for its fifth term and say, we are the change. Like, change from what? Change from a Tory party? Like, is it change of prime minister we're voting for? <laughs> yeah, just to pick up two points on John's uh, comments there. The first is about narrative, and that's something I write about in the Spectator political column this week, which is what message you tell the country. And even Rishi Sinai seems to not know sometimes. Is he the candidate for change or is it continuity? Does he reject his predecessors or embrace them? Appoint them. Uh, well, <laughs> well, quite. And and this is what sometimes I think confusing is, is you know, for instance... Rishi Sunak, I think there's a strong case either way on this one, you know, didn't, for instance, vote against Boris Johnson in the Privileges Committee vote in Parliament, but then would make a few pops about him at sort of the lobby Christmas and uh, Westminster drinks reception. So, I, I mean, I, it depends on how seriously you think the threat is, for instance. Um, and then and then the other point is that, so what is the, the key thing about messaging? What is the, what are the Conservatives going to fight the election on? And, and a lot of Tory ministers mm. are, are unsure about that. Yeah. The second point I make as well is the local elections there. And of course... Andy Street in the West Midlands and Ben Hatchin in Tees Valley are both up for re-election. And the question I think is underpinning this is how much noise the discordant voice is going to make. Divided parties don't tend to win elections. If you've got Ben Hatchin and Andy Street doing what they have in recent months, criticising the government over HS2 and James Cleverley's alleged comments about Stockton, um, that can all then point to similar to what we saw in 97, which is you know a Conservative party that doesn't know how to attack the opposition leader and is is focused on internal divisions of things like yeah. back then the Euro, right now the ECHR, Rwanda. Um, and so it could be a case of the January Blue on Blues. Um, so that really is going to be, I think, a theme we see in the coming weeks. John, lastly, I do just want to ask you about the Reform Party, which we've spoken yeah. about for a couple of days now. Richard Tice went on the attack towards Starmer, calling him, was it Starmageddon. You also said Sunak and um, uh, and Starmer were socialists. Yeah. Now, yeah, possibly, <laughs> um, but um, Sunak is the least likely socialist I've come across in my life, and I've seen a lot of them. Yeah. I think the interest of the of, the, of, of Richard Tyson Farage, obviously lurking in the backgrounds, is 
you know, it was Antonio Gramsci said that, you know, when there's moments of change, you see morbid symptoms. I think the Reform Party are a morbid symptom. And what they are is they are, they see the Tory party as carrion and their vultures. And they are not going to do a deal, uh, as they did in 2019, implicit or explicit deal. They're going to try to create discord, disruption on the right of politics because they they can't make progress for themselves, Farage can't make progress, if if the Tory party stay. They've got to change, and the best way to change the Tory party is getting them out. So I, I see... A, a lot of soap opera during this year. Will he stand? Won't he stand? Which seat will stand? If I was advising Farage, I'd be doing MRPs. I'd be looking for the one seat in the country where a Farage reform candidacy could be like a, a by-election within a general election and just steal something, steal a crown. Um, wherever it is, I don't know what the right constituency would be, but you just feel... I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Changed Nigel Farage. It should... Becoming a TV presenter has given him a polish. Um, being exposed in that way showed he's likeable. Uh, it took some of the sting out of him, I think, for some soft Tory voters. Uh, and I think the fragmentation of the Tory party is, is part of the story that's going to be during this year. Can you hold it together? Andy Street and Ben Hoochin will try to keep their positions so they won't contribute to discipline. The Tory party in Parliament's not disciplined. Will will one of our great parties divide after the election, after defeat? The Labour Party did in the 80s, but came back. The Labour Party didn't under Corbyn, really, um, and came back. And so if I was a Tory, I'd be thinking, we need to ride this through. But the psychodrama and just the amount of commentary that will be about Tyson Farage and the Reform Party, because politics is also has been in the last decade or so because of social media been almost fully integrated into the world of celebrity and entertainment. Farage is a celebrity. The Reform Party provide entertainment and, and commentary and we'll be talking a lot during this year about them. So I think that part of it and I, that's part of the politics we're all handling. Labour are slightly too boring for social media and for channels and for commentators because they don't make errors, they don't say anything. And that's a form of discipline in this multimedia world. And the Tory party say a bit too much, the ministers say too much. And Farage is now, he's going to, he's going to be teasing and teasing and teasing for months, I reckon. But I wonder if you're looking at focus groups mm. or, or the typical Labour mm. voter, who would be the typical Labour voter that would be thinking, OK, Starmer's my kind of guy, but actually then be persuaded by Richard Tice? No, I know. That's the thing. The thing, the, the thing about when Labour's on 45% in the country, one in two people are the typical Labour voter. And that's part of what we deal with. And then you can get drawn down in this rabbit hole, I think, which is you look at, in focus groups, you look at swing voters. And the thing about swing voters is you're, you're looking at the 25 to 30% of people who are willing to vote Tory. I, they're not really swing voters. They're swing voters from the Tories to reform, not swing voters from, from, from the from Tories to Labour. And there really isn't much, but which is Labour to, Labour to reform. And I think the Reform Party are a threat uh, to the Tory party. They're a threat of fragment... If this, is, if this is a plague on all your houses election coming up, then it's Lib Dem, it's Labour, and it's Reform. It's not Tory. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I was at that press conference yesterday. This Reform to Labour narrative they're pushing about, you know, Starmageddon, for instance, all of Richard Tice's politics are entirely, you know, Thatcherite 80s 
much more on the right. He was talking about bond markets and disruption and borrowing would cause. He was talking about a bonfire of yeah. EU laws. It was all, and, and then he was talking about, you know, they're two sides of the same socialist, you know, Sunak and Starmer. And of course, and he was deriding socialism. And I just think that I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. That's a proposition. Well, exactly. And, and how do you get kind of. I think that's a very different thing to what I think it seemed to be the kind of pre 2010s UKIP language rather than what Nigel Farage was offering in the early 2010s when they were doing really well in places like you know up until 2017 that Stoke by election. That's, there. Su- that's such a that's such a good point because successful populist right wing parties on the continent they're in favour of a traditional 1970s welfare state. They're actually they actually say we're anti immigration. Immigrants are a sign of change a change from what was good, which was the past, and the past had a welfare state. And Richard Dice is saying... A better yesterday. Yeah, yeah. and the, the Richard Dice is saying a better Thatcherism. And that's the Red Wall is not like, do you know what we want? We disappointed with the Labour Party, they weren't Thatcherite enough. Well, and I think the other thing is, by-elections is what yeah. made UKIP. Yes. And will they make reform? And unfortunately, for the reform, on the evidence we've seen, the polling, yeah, 9-10%... No, doesn't come out. Where's the by-election machine? And the danger, I think, for reform, as John says there about entertainment... It's a lot. A lot of the time, it's great media attention. What is the ground game? You could have had a genuine grassroots Eurosceptic movement, and actually turning out. When you go up to a by election, you've got ten weeks to turn that into uh, getting the d- voting out, and there, there's no on the ground operation. And so, for instance, you know, you look at the past by elections. They haven't. I think they've only done well, uh, retained their re- deposit in one of them. And so, I think Blackpool South, which is a Leave voting northern yeah. seat, if they can't do well there, you think, you know, what, what they can't the persuade Peter Bone stand for them. Like you need, you need, you, you. If you can't have a ground game, have a defection. Mm. Well, well, I, I mean, there's lots to talk of that, but actually, as John said, if we see up the reality, that's the key thing. Thank you, John. Thank you, James, and thanks for listening. And if you like what we do at the Spectator, whether that be our podcast or Spectator TV, our broadcast team is currently looking for a new producer to come and join us. The listing is going to be in the blog below, so do consider applying. Our deadline closes on the 21st of January.